You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is doubling down on the flights he chartered to send 50 undocumented immigrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, saying they won't be the last. We have to go and figure out, okay, who are those people likely to be? Uh, And if you can do it at the source and divert to sanctuary jurisdictions, the chance they end up in Florida is much less. But the sheriff of the Texas county those immigrants were taken from, Javier Salazar, says he's starting a criminal investigation. What infuriates me the most about this case is that here we have 48 people that are already on on hard times, uh, right? They are here legally in our country at that point. They have every right to be where they are. And I believe that they were preyed upon. Somebody came from out of state, preyed upon these people, um, lured them with promises of, of a better life, which is what they were absolutely looking for. My guest is immigration law expert Jack Chin, a professor at UC Davis Law School. There have been a record number of crossings at the southern border. Apprehensions top two million for the first time ever. Is this increase the result of Biden's immigration policies? Well, I think the word has gotten around that it is more possible to exercise your rights at the border than it used to be, and that some people are going to be allowed in to have their asylum claims or other claims for immigration status heard. So I I think to some extent it may be uh, the result of more humane policies under this administration than the last one. But I think the main issue is that... uh, There's a lot of people in a lot of trouble who are looking for a safe place to live and work and to avoid the economic and political and environmental problems that exist where they live. The reason that there's a lot of people trying to get to the United States uh, and other countries is that there are a lot of people who are in trouble where they live now. So one million undocumented immigrants have been allowed into the country legally. Are most of those seeking asylum? I believe that's right, that if there's no 
claim for lawful status, either based on some sort of temporary or permanent immigration status or citizenship or asylum, they're not going to let that many people in. Certain people are paroled in temporarily for medical treatment and there are other small numbers and limited categories of people who get in temporarily. But basically, that's the rationale. So asylum itself is a long shot, isn't it? But it's easy to get past the first part of the process, which is the credible fear interview. Certainly there are a number of steps that an applicant has to pass through. And asylum probably is a long shot for a lot of the people that we're talking about, because you don't get asylum, you don't get refugee status simply because your conditions are desperate at home. It has to be based on a fear of persecution for one of a limited number of reasons. And simply environmental disaster or economic disaster in and of itself isn't sufficient to get you asylum. On the other hand, a lot of people who are living in very difficult conditions at home, it's not simply the economy or the environment. It also gives rise to social problems, gangs, uh, violence, and and other uh, challenges to living any sort of normal life that could fit into the recognized asylum categories. So turning now to current events, last Wednesday, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, chartered two planes and sent about 50 migrants, men, women, and children, out of Texas, which is about 700 miles from the Florida state line, to Martha's Vineyard. Is there anything wrong with that legally? Well, there might be a few things wrong with that legally. One is you can't trick people into going somewhere, even if you're the government. You can't say, for example, if you get on this bus and drive to where it's going, there'll be a job waiting for you if there isn't a job waiting for you. You can't deceive people. You also can't force people to go where they don't want to go. And so it's really going to depend on what the underlying facts are. How and why did these people get on the plane? What were they told? And I think there very well might have been, conceivably, some deception involved, because I think a lot of people would not want to just get on a plane and go to Martha's Vineyard with no place to stay and no job and no reasonable prospect of any sort of settled situation. And so one wonders what those people were told or if they voluntarily went on that particular journey. But if they did voluntarily go, and they were told more or less what was going to happen to them when they got there, then it's not necessarily a criminal offense or a even necessarily a civil violation on the part of the people who organized that particular excursion. That being said, there are state interests here, and it's not clear to me that states have the right, even voluntarily, to scoop up their undesirable, and here I'm air quotes, supposedly undesirable residents and ship them to other states. For example, there's a lot of, uh, of history uh, of patient dumping and of poor people dumping. And we can imagine a situation where in any state there might be sick people who uh, are poor and use public hospitals. And would it be legal 
for the government to say, you know, we can identify a group of people, each of whom uses hundreds of thousands of dollars of publicly funded health care every year. And what we're going to do is we're going to tell them uh, that we will give each of them $5,000 if they get on an airplane and are willing to be flown to another state and never come back. And assuming that those people were told the truth about what was going to happen, that wouldn't be a crime. It wouldn't be a civil violation as to them. But it would be a big problem state to state. Uh, we can't have a system where states are taking, for example, their high-cost medical patients, uh, or to take another example, uh, people who commit crimes uh, and are dangerous, and just ship them to other states and say, this can be uh, a situation that some other place can deal with. Uh, that would not be a good policy for the United States to have, where uh, each state was constantly trying to ship its supposedly undesirable residents to other places. Uh, and uh, we don't really do that now, for good reason. And if what's going on here, as it seems to be, is that one state is trying to impose costs on another state, I mean, a lot of things are going on here. And the core thing is a political stunt that involves using people as pawns in a very inhumane way. But another thing that seems to be going on is that some states are trying to shift costs to other states. And that is something that in our federal system very well might be illegal. That's never been litigated, has it? There are instances, as you mentioned in the past, of states shipping homeless people to other states. Has that ever been litigated, though? Well, what's, what's been litigated is the flip side of it. Uh, there's a famous case called Edwards versus California from the U.S. Supreme Court in 1941, where California refused to allow certain allegedly poor people to come into California. And the Supreme Court said, this isn't acceptable. And part of it was the individual's right to travel, but part of it was the state-to-state relation, that one state can't say, this is going to be your problem and not my problem. And so, you know, certain aspects of it uh, have been litigated. Is there a case on all fours that's exactly like this? Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. And I think the reason is that every reasonable person knows that this can only be a stunt because it wouldn't be workable as a long-term consistent policy. You know, if states started playing tit for tat, you know, that would be a very unpleasant situation. And ultimately, the states would have to say, okay, okay, you know, we're going to stop doing this because it it would be costly and harmful to the individuals involved and embarrassing. So it's not really something that could be contemplated as an ongoing policy. So this is, uh, this is a prank. And it's working because it certainly has gotten the publicity that uh, its architects desired. There is evidence. There were brochures. There's evidence that the migrants were falsely promised cash, work opportunities, schooling for children. A lawyer's group for about 30 of them said that our clients were induced to board planes and cross state lines under false pretenses. The sheriff of Bear County is starting a criminal investigation, but he said he didn't know exactly what laws were involved. And a Massachusetts state lawmaker has requested a federal human trafficking investigation. I don't know if this is another stunt to say that they're going to criminally investigate. Well, 
as I say, I don't think that you can tell people, hey, travel from here to there, spend your time doing that, and when you get there, there will be these benefits for you. There will be these economic uh, advantages for you. I don't think that you can do that legally. I think that's fraud. And the exact crime that would it would be in different states, you know, would vary from place to place. But I'm willing to bet that there's no state where it's where it's legal to induce people to spend their time and money to uh, do a bunch of things when the the person who induces that conduct has no intention of coming through or knows that it won't come through. It's fraud in one flavor or another if that's the way that it happened, and I personally don't know that. But if that's the way that happened, that it happened, then it's fraud, uh, and it very well might subject the people who carried that out to criminal liability. You know, there's a, a, a lot of considerations, a lot of steps, just like there's a lot of steps between showing up at the border and getting asylum. There's a lot of steps between an allegation of criminal wrongdoing and somebody being convicted of a crime. But if I had been asked as a lawyer, is it a good idea to have people travel from state to state on an airplane that I've paid for based on false pretenses, I'd say no, that that creates a legal risk for inducing people to do things based on false pretenses, and you shouldn't do it because you might be charged with a crime. I I should point out that Governor DeSantis has said that they knew what they were doing. They signed waivers. I read that if they were lured onto the planes, that that could that that would mean that they're a crime victim, and that would automatically qualify them for a visa. I don't think it's quite that simple, but certainly some victims of crime, if they participate in an investigation as witnesses there's a possibility that they can get what's called a U visa. But there are, you know, substantial requirements, including a requirement of having suffered physical or mental harm. And it only applies to certain offenses. And, you know, it's going to be a complicated process. Texas's governor has sent something like 11,000 migrants from Texas to Chicago, New York, and Washington, and the mayors of those cities have said it's a crisis and asked for the federal government to step in. Shouldn't the federal government step in here? I think the federal government is uh, being careful here not to fan the flames of a political controversy, and I do think that the federal government should take responsibility for managing people who are here applying for asylum and refugee status. When we're dealing with overseas refugees, there's a much more orderly procedure. And there are destinations and support systems. The Office of Refugee Resettlement is involved and manages this. And it certainly would be helpful to have something similar for people who show up at the border. And an orderly process with a support system and a protocol that would render some of these pranks and some of these demonstrations unnecessary. But I don't think that it's going to go on forever. I really don't. I think there's going to be litigation. I think at some point, a state or the federal government is going to find some way to get involved. And this is not going to keep going in the way that it's been. At a minimum, I I would predict, I would bet, you know, given that lawyers are involved now, that there's going to be some way to make sure 
that the, the individuals involved, the people seeking asylum who are transported across the United States, give informed consent before they go. As I say, it seems unlikely that they would have given informed consent as the situation is now, because nobody wants to be driven somewhere and dumped off with no support. That being said, to the extent that the governors of Texas and Florida are going to sanctuary jurisdictions, that does give them some cover, because they can say, look, these places said that they wanted unauthorized migrants or people seeking asylum, and we're just giving them what they asked for. And so uh, I think that circumstance, to the extent that you have a state legislature or a city council that's passed a resolution that says we are a jurisdiction that protects unauthorized migrants, well, that's going to fit into the argument of, uh, of these governors. So what what happens? Let's say someone coming from Venezuela is granted asylum. They're just left to their own devices at that point? There is a widespread, if limited, network of private humanitarian services available. And there's a lot of people out there in various communities who, are, who try to help people resettle. But as I understand it, what you get when you get asylum is the right to stay in the United States. But not necessarily a lot of benefits, I think. What do you think about the possibility of uh, the human trafficking investigation? Is that going too far? Well, I have no sympathy for these political stunts. I think they're very inhumane. It doesn't strike me that it's at the core of human trafficking or kidnapping if it's the case that that these people are not forced and, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them were coerced when we're talking about 11,000 people. It, it, it does seem pretty clear that a lot of them wouldn't have gone if they had known what was really happening. But it seems to me that the core of the deception isn't that you're going to be forced to work or you're going to be required to work, even though you didn't know what was really going to happen, that the core of what's going on is uh, that they were promised benefits that they, that they didn't get, but not so that the people who were engaging in these stunts could obtain their labor or, or services or anything like that. It doesn't seem to me to be kidnapping or false imprisonment in the sense of that they were held by force. They were tricked into voluntarily going, and that seems more like fraud to me than kidnapping, and it doesn't seem like human trafficking because human trafficking has a connotation of people who were forced to work, forced into sexual servitude, uh, unlawfully confined, that sort of thing. What's going on here is not appetizing in any way, but it doesn't seem to me that it's human trafficking is, uh, is at the core of it. We're dealing with people who were free at the beginning of the trip and who were let loose at the end of the trip. That's not exactly human trafficking, as I understand it. Thanks so much for being on the show, Jack. That's Professor Jack Chin of UC Davis Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 
5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. After the U.S. Supreme Court threw out New York's century-old law that limited who could carry a handgun in public, New York and other states rushed to pass legislation. New York's banned concealed weapons in most public places and increased the requirements for obtaining a concealed carry permit. For example, by requiring a list of social media accounts for the past three years, four character references, 16 hours of in-person training, and two hours of live fire training. Though federal judge Glenn Sutterby denied a request to stop the law from taking effect, his 78-page decision described at length why he found the law to be unconstitutional. Joining me is Andrew Willinger, executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. So New York's new concealed carry law, which was enacted pretty quickly after the Supreme Court's opinion, is it almost as restrictive as the law the Supreme Court struck down? So what New York did very shortly after the Bruin decision came down is that it revised its law to remove the specific aspect that the Supreme Court had said was unconstitutional. So it removed this requirement to show proper cause before one could obtain a concealed carry license. But uh, at the same time, New York took a number of steps to make its licensing regime restrictive in other areas, right? So it, it sort of balanced that out by adding a definition of good moral character and then requiring certain submissions of applicants in order to demonstrate good moral character. One aspect that got a lot of attention is that the state also expanded its list of sensitive places where guns are banned. So that list became much longer. And so, you know, I think I think you can say New York, you know, addressed the specific uh, issue that was identified in Bruin, which is that a state can't require some kind of exceptional showing by an applicant in order to obtain a concealed carry license. But New York took other steps that were sort of things that the court didn't provide clear guidance on in Bruin one way or the other. 
So in this case, the judge denied a request to stop the law from going into effect, but then says the law could be found unconstitutional. How does that make sense? Right. So it is a little bit unusual. What the judge did in this case, the judge had sort of on a, on a very expedited schedule, briefing from the parties and then had a hearing on the uh, motion for a preliminary injunction of this new New York law. And the reason for that is that the law was set to go into effect on September 1st. So this all happened in a very short time period. And what the judge did was he ultimately found that there was no standing to challenge the law and the case was dismissed on those grounds. But the judge also included about 20 or 25 pages of analysis of the likelihood of success on the merits if the plaintiffs had standing. And what he said is, you know, I'm including this because it could be that the decision is appealed to the the Second Circuit, and maybe the Second Circuit will find that there is standing, in which case this is how I would have held. And again, you know, it's worth noting that the judge did actually have a hearing and argument from the parties on everything, right? So on the standing issue and on the and on, on the likelihood of success. So this is how he would have decided the case if he had reached that part. So let's go over some of the reasons that he thinks that the law might be unconstitutional. This is a little technical, but the new law omits the phrase other than in self-defense. So explain that. So what New York did after the Bruin decision came down in in June, and I think New York's law was passed just at the beginning of July, is that there was this requirement in the law already that said, you know, no license shall be issued unless the applicant meets A, B, C, you know, this list of criteria. And one of those items on the list was that the applicant has to be of good moral character. Now, the law previously didn't provide any definition of what good moral character means, So New York added a definition, um, and that definition is having the essential character, temperament, and judgment necessary to be entrusted with a weapon and to use it only in a manner that does not endanger oneself or others. And it's sort of that last phrase that the judge really focused on. And he said, if you know, if you read this literally, it would bar anyone from obtaining a license who intends to use a weapon in a legitimate defensive way, right? So if you're trying to get a concealed carry license because you want to defend yourself if you are attacked, you know, if you use a gun in that situation, you're almost certainly going to endanger the attacker, right? So anytime that you you use a weapon in self-defense, it's going to endanger others. And the judge says that that by in a literal interpretation preventing any defensive use of a gun, that this is unconstitutional. And what about the definition of moral character? It seems pretty broad and open to interpretation. Sure. Again, so the sort of narrow piece of the opinion here is that a judge would have just struck this down because he says it doesn't allow for a gun to be used in self-defense. But that is the sort of core Second Amendment right that the Supreme Court has identified. So that's his main problem. And that's sort of an easy fix in some ways, right? The only thing that New York really needs to do is add the words other than in self-defense at the end of that definition. But the judge also says he would have struck down this good moral character requirement in its entirety because 
he would find that it gave too much discretion, subjective discretion, to the licensing officer in violation of Bruin, right? So this is maybe more consequential because the judge is saying that he reads Bruin to mean there can't be any subjective criteria. It has to just be sort of checking the boxes of you meet the age requirement, you don't have any disqualifying felonies, you know, it just has to be only objective things. Like training, for example, would would be okay, but anything that requires uh, a subjective evaluation by the officer is improper in the judge's view. And I guess, you know, I think that's a little bit of, a, of an odd way to read Bruin because the Bruin decision uh, explicitly sort of signs off on the licensing regimes in a few states, uh, Delaware, Connecticut, and Rhode Island specifically, that have essentially identical requirements in their laws. They, they require good moral character or suitability. And th- I mean, those are subjective determinations, sort of any way you slice it. The Supreme Court says those licensing regimes are okay, but nevertheless, in this opinion, the judge would have held that sort of one iota of subjectivity is a problem. So then what about the law's requirement that the applicant provide social media accounts used in the past three years? I mean, someone would be doing the vetting of that. It seems very discretionary. So this is, I thought, kind of a, a curious section of the of the opinion. It's, you know, the judge doesn't really provide detailed analysis of the social media requirement. First, he, he says that he, w- he would find that the, the requirement to submit character references and go to an in-person interview is okay. That That's constitutional in his view. But then he says that this social media submission is problematic, and he just sort of gives a laundry list of reasons, right? (laughs) So there might be a First Amendment problem, there might be a Fifth Amendment problem, it's too subjective, it implicates the self-defense issue as well. And so it's kind of hard to tell what the actual basis for the holding would be. You know, the the judge uh, identifies the Fifth Amendment, so that's, you know, that you have a right against self-incrimination and says, you know, maybe if an applicant has to disclose all of his or her social media postings, that might require the applicant to incriminate themselves. But that doesn't that doesn't actually seem to be a theory that the plaintiffs in this case had uh, articulated in their pleadings. So I, I think this is something that the court actually raised at the hearing. And it's a little bit of a head scratcher. I mean, I think the First Amendment challenge to this provision is probably stronger and probably something yeah. that it might be easier to understand, right? That, you know, if, you, if you're making some kind of political post and then the licensing officer, you know, takes issue with that and denies the license on that basis, that that would be a First Amendment problem. But again, there's not there's not a ton of, of analysis. Is this requirement of providing social media accounts, is that something new that New York has? Do any other states have that? That's a great question. Um, it, you know, so this is new. This is something that New York just passed in, in July. I don't believe any other states have a similar requirement in their licensing regime, right? I don't believe any other states require concealed carry license applicants to make any kind of social media specific submission. I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that, but I, I think it's a pretty novel approach that New York is taking. And again, it's, there's sort of various theories that have been put forward about why it may or may not be constitutional. And I think the First Amendment one is probably the most compelling. But again, you also see the discretion element playing out here where it's unclear how this provision will work in practice, right? So, you know, is the licensing officer actually going to have discretion to deny an application based on a post that 
you know, they themselves find to be objectionable or is there some kind of guidance given to them? Right. We, we really don't know. It also seems like it's going to be difficult just to administer that, you know, without additional funding going through three years of social media accounts Absolutely. seems like a lot. Now, the judge also said that the state's list of sensitive places is extensive. And it is extensive. And I remember during the Supreme Court oral arguments when the justices were talking about some places that might be considered sensitive, but they said, you know, you can't have all of Manhattan, basically. You can't have this broad brush. And this looks like a pretty broad brush. Yes. And the judge's opinion here goes back to that portion of Bruin. And, and, you know, his issue seems to be that, you know, he thinks what New York has done is to designate any place where people congregate in public and where there is presumptive access, you know, sort of easy access to law enforcement as a sensitive place. That's what the the Supreme Court in Bruin said you cannot do. You know, New York couldn't designate the entire island of Manhattan as a sensitive place just because it's very crowded and people congregate there and, and there's a lot of police around. That's not okay. But I think the judge's view here of, of what can be a sensitive place is pretty narrow, right? So he seems to think, and he actually says in this portion of the opinion that he, he would agree with the plaintiffs that Bruin limited the uh, list of what can be a sensitive place to only schools, government buildings, legislative assemblies, polling places, and courthouses. Those are the five places that are specifically mentioned in the opinion. And the judge here says, well, that's that's it, right? I, I don't think that you know anywhere else could be designated as a sensitive place. That's an odd way to look at Bruin because Bruin ex- explicitly says that courts should reason by analogy to historical sensitive places and that there might be new places that weren't listed or, or weren't specifically mentioned in that opinion. So I think it's a little bit it's a little bit odd that you would just just sort of cut it off there and think that there there could be no expansion. Um, and, you know, the other thing I'll, I'll mention here just briefly is that the judge seems to say, you know, if I'm reading this correctly, he seems to say that New York would need to come forward with a historical law that prohibited guns in every single place on the list. And again, I think that's that's a little bit strange, right? You would think that these places would sort of rise or fall independently. And so, you know, that that, that a court would walk through them and say, well, you know, these places are sort of similar to schools and government buildings, so it's okay to prohibit guns here. But, you know, maybe on the subway, it might not be as clear. But here, he seems to just sort of take a broad brush and say, well, if there isn't a historical law that covers all of these places, then New York's approach is, is unconstitutional. Maybe he's taking a page from the Supreme Court's historical analysis lately. <sighs> Thanks, Andrew. That's Andrew Willinger, executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.